So this morning, we are starting a new sermon series. Ken's on vacation, Caroline's on vacation. So that's why I'm doing announcements and the sermon here. We're doing the sermon series is going to be called Navigating the Hard Questions. And Ken and I are going to take turns over the next few weeks just tackling some of the more difficult topics of our faith. So we'll do patriarchy this week. I think he's going to talk about hell next week. I'll do exclusion, um, like exclusionary thoughts about the faith um, in the third week. And I think he's going to talk about like why pray on the fourth week of it. So I think this is a sermon series you won't want to miss. But I do want to say here that, um, you know, patriarchy is a, is a vast topic. And it's a topic that is difficult for many of us to, to traverse, including myself. And so this morning, I feel like I'm only going to be able to paint with some pretty broad strokes. Because you can imagine, I have a lot to say about gender and patriarchy in the scripture. So I'd say, if you want to go in deeper, join Sarah's class. Um, I saw her, a syllabus that she put together today that looks absolutely incredible. But patriarchy is a really, um, it's an important question for the church to be talking about. I grew up in a conservative church that taught that women couldn't lead men. Maybe some of you came from a background that was similar to that. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s when someone said, you know, you really you should probably really pursue a, you know, a pastoring calling or a leading. And I said, I, I'm not sure. I think that women should be pastors. And it took me about a year to go through scripture and to try and reevaluate the ways that I was reading it. And so I thought this morning it would start, it would help by starting out by talking about where some of those ideas come from in the scripture. So this is a pretty thick topic this morning, but hopefully it will be helpful. So Genesis 1 and 2, right? Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapters 1 and 2, the opening story. It contains our Judeo-Christian origin story. It's the story we all know of Adam and of Eve and how they were created and they were in the Garden of Eden together. And those first couple of chapters were written as a poem, right? Technically, it's epic poetic narrative is the genre. And the poem there, it paints a picture of God and humans and animals and all of creation living in harmony with one another. That's the picture of the Garden of Eden. There's no rivalry between the humans and God and the animals. There's no fear. There's no shame. And so God walks alongside the humans in the garden as the humans are naked and vulnerable. And then we're told that the humans broke this tranquility when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? There was a tree that God told them not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that tree made them feel adequate to judge their fellow humans as if they themselves were God. And that tree of judgment, it brought hardship to the humans, is what the text tells us. And as a natural consequence of these actions, we see in Genesis chapter 3, the voice of God is talking to the humans about the consequences about what has happened. So I'm just going to read this aloud to you from Genesis 3. To the woman, God said, your pains in childbearing will be very severe. With pain and labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, or Adam is the Hebrew, it just means the human. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate of the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. 
Right, so in other words, women, birth is going to be awful. You're going to look to men, and you're going to long for their support in your life, but they're going to dominate you. And they're going to rule over you. And men, you're just going to work and work and work and work. And you're not going to see a whole lot of fruit from that work. And then you're going to die. Right? It's a warm and fuzzy. I do want to make a note that this is a heteronormative story. And what that means is that it assumes sexual partnerships happen between men and women. And most ancient literature is heteronormative because it speaks to the broadest audience of humans who do pair with the opposite sex. But it's not a prescription. Right? This is a poem. It's not trying to outline what life should look like, delineating men's roles and women's roles in a literal sense for us to hold on to. There are some churches today that look at these verses and they say, well, see, women should have babies and be ruled by men. And men should work to provide for their families. It's part of our human design and part of our curse to bear. But for me, that misses the entire point. Because what the text is doing here is it's making a general observation about humanity. It's making a general observation about humanity that largely rings true even today. That while women don't like it, we are often ruled by men rather than treated as equals. And that men often feel pressure to work and to provide and to protect, even when that work becomes over-demanding and it becomes counterproductive for them to maintain healthy, balanced life for them to flourish. And what the text is telling us here is that this was not the dream of God for humanity. Right? This was not the dream of God for humanity. The dream of God for humanity was the equality and the connection, even the playfulness of the Garden of Eden in the two prior chapters. Right? And so in that sense, you can imagine what the Bible is really revolutionary. Right? It's critiquing these seemingly universal experiences of humans. And the Bible says right here from the get-go that patriarchy and never-ending work are not the hopes of God for us. I mean, that's a big deal. That was written down 2,500 years ago. And then when we turn into the New Testament, we see Jesus breaking all kinds of gender rules. I made a little note to self. That would be a really great sermon series at some point, just to look at how Jesus breaks them. But I wanted to tell you about one that was really helpful for me. I know I've preached on it before, but it's the Mary and Martha story. So when I was in my 20s and I was trying to decide whether or not I felt okay with the idea of a woman being a pastor and a leader, I read a little commentary on the story of Mary and Martha. And what that story says, if you're not familiar with it, Jesus had a couple of really good friends named Mary and Martha who were sisters. And there's a story in the New Testament that talks about how Jesus went over to their house and Martha was back in the kitchen. You know, she was kind of the busybody, the task-oriented person, getting everything done. And her sister Mary was hanging out in the front room with Jesus, sitting on the ground, listening to him. And then Martha comes in and she says, okay, Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? I want you to tell her to help me. And then Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're upset about many things, but very few things are needed. Indeed, only one, Mary has chosen what is better, and that's been taken away from her. And so often that has been translated by a more patriarchal culture to say, you know, like being a busybody and being task-oriented as a female, that's, that's not what you should be. That's not the way you should be. And a lot of people who are designed to be more task-oriented, especially women who are like this, have felt very put down. I think by this interpretation. And Mary, you know, it was said like, well, you need to be the quiet, contemplative one that's just sitting at Jesus' feet. Be gentle and serene, and that's what is blessed. 
But there's a, there's a conservative theologian, he's certainly conservative on LGBTQ, but N.T. Wright, who makes this, um, he, he said, gosh, you know, you read this and you don't realize, unless you study the ancient culture, that the thing that's missing here is that Mary was in the boys' room. Right, so in, in ancient Israel, in first century Judea, the homes would be a front room that was accessible only for the men. And in the back room was where the women were, and that included the kitchen and getting things ready. And so what was happening here was Martha was back in the women's space, and she sees Mary up in the men's space. And she's like, Jesus, aren't you bothered by this? Mary, get back here and help me. And Jesus doesn't tell Mary to do that. Jesus says, oh, no, no. There's only a few things that are needed, and this is one of them. This is one of the most important. Let her be up here. And it wasn't just that she was breaking the gender norm, but she was also sitting at his feet. And in that space, women, or not women, actually men, were usually said to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi if they were a rabbi in training. So let's say you were studying to be a rabbi and you were studying under Rabbi Hillel. You would be said to be sitting at the feet of Rabbi Hillel. I sit at the feet of Rabbi Eleazar. So here we have Mary sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus ben Joseph. Do we see what's happening? And then Jesus is like, no, this is good. Mary's actually chosen what is better. And I remember when I read that interpretation, I was like, oh, Jesus, no wonder they hated you. (laughs) And then we had the early church and it included female apostles, deacons, teachers, church planters. Actually in John, I think it's chapter four, I'm going to go off on little tangents just because this is a topic dear to my heart. The Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well becomes essentially the first church planter in the New Testament. If you go back and read that story, she goes back to her village and tells everybody about Jesus and they all start following. Peter and Paul, their version of the household codes, they broke with tradition by instructing men and women, men who were over women and in fact owned women, Slaves and masters, masters who owned slaves, to submit to one another. I don't know if we can fully understand what that would have rung like in their ears. Men have to submit to the women they own. Masters have to submit to their slaves. That even in a patriarchal culture, the early Christians were doing things differently. They were trying to break down the power structures that were oppressing people. I mean, this was radical. This was like the crazy progressive space that you were going to in that time. The Apostle Paul writes, So in Jesus Christ, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, this word baptized even. You know, in the Old Testament, or the Hebrew scriptures, you know, the mark of belonging to the children of God or the people of God was circumcision, which is available only to men. So what the followers of Jesus were doing here is they actually said, no, circumcision isn't the mark of the belonging to God, it's baptism which is available to everyone. That was a really, really big change. It was a very significant change. And this doesn't sound 
like patriarchy, and it doesn't sound like hierarchy and power or the man will rule. This sounds a little bit more like the Garden of Eden. Now that Jesus and Paul appear to work toward the image of the garden in their respective ministries. And that's why it's with that sensibility that we also are working toward greater inclusion and equality within the church, you know, as the ongoing formation of humanity continues toward justice. Now, some of you might have a little voice in your head, like I do, that says, well, what about that verse that says that Christ is the head of the church, just like man is the head of the woman? I mean, that was one that was also significant for me. And then I read um, a commentary by Gordon Fee, again, a more conservative commentator. He was a Pentecostal uh, theologian who translated quite a bit of the New Testament for the NIV. And he said that word there that's translated as head in Greek is best translated as source. You know, like the source waters. So Christ is the source of the church, just as man is the source of woman. And what this is doing is alluding once again back to the origin story in Genesis. Right? We remember back in Genesis when God created the woman out of man's side, God took the rib and formed it into a human. And we notice in that story, God didn't take a rib from the head or a bone from the head that woman should rule over the man. God didn't take a bone from the foot that a woman should serve man. But God took a rib out of the man's side that the woman would serve alongside him, right? That they would be standing in partnership with one another. Now, I used to really struggle with the writings of the Apostle Paul, especially there was a time in my 20s where I actually refused to read him for two or three years because I thought he came off as such a misogynist pig. <laughs> and if you just read it straight, you're, it's a little like, wow. You know, he wrote a lot of the New Testament after the Gospels, and I've started to come to see, um, I, this probably started 10 years ago, I started to see Paul as a reformer. And I thought I would just offer here one example of why. So one of the passages that I think often rightly bothers, bothers us modern people um, who are reading it is from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul tells women to keep their heads covered in church services. What is that about? There's a, she's actually a classicist. Her name's Sarah Rudin. She wrote a book called Paul Among the People. And that book was helpful to me on Paul in general, but especially on this. And she described how in the ancient city of Corinth, where Paul was writing to the church, the upper class, respectably married women would cover their faces with veils. Right? Marriage wasn't available to everyone in Greek society or in Roman society. Like respectable marriage was available mostly to the upper classes. And so the vast majority of women who would be attending this church would either be lower class and maybe partnered for life, but probably not married. Perhaps prostitutes, women who have become destitute because maybe their spouse died or left them or their partner died or left them. Some of them were slaves. And so not very many women qualified to have the kind of marriage where you could wear a veil. But in that early church, you had men and women and people of all classes mixing together. Like that in and of itself was really, really radical. And this veil then created a hierarchy of sorts between the women in the church. And it distinguished between the respectable women and the women of ill repute. 
And so this was the hierarchy that the Apostle Paul didn't want to reinforce. So the way he tried to solve it was to have all women wear a veil in church so that the prostitutes and the slaves and the people who were lower born would be seen as respectable equals and not as less than. Now, this isn't like a a prescription for all times and all places. I don't think we women need to start wearing veils. But I can understand what Paul is doing pastorally in this context, right? I don't want to wear a veil and be seen as a respectably married woman. But this intuition that Paul has to give dignity to everyone and to place people on equal footing within the faith community is what he is going for. And this kind of work of creating equality, it remains really difficult for us when our language and our images and our stories are so steeped in patriarchy and in gender norms. And that starts with the language that we use for God. The most orthodox teaching about God is that God is beyond gender. The most orthodox teaching about God is that God is beyond gender. And that God contains both male and female aspects, whatever that means, since gender norms vary between cultures. God contains both male and female, and God is neither male nor female. Right? This is one of the mysterious paradoxes of our faith. God is both and. God is beyond gender and God is all genders. All humans reflect the image of God. Right back in Genesis, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We all reflect the image of God, and in doing so, we are all of us made up of traits that might be deemed masculine traits, traits that might be deemed feminine traits by our cultures. We contain both of those, all of those in us. And what this is, is a manifestation of the divine spirit. And this is a place where I think queer people actually help display this aspect of God and God's creation to the church, right? That by living into our deepest desires, you know, perhaps for some of us it's to dress in a way that culture deems gender non-conforming. Queer people are showing us that there's this beautiful diversity of humans and a beautiful diversity within each of us and that the spirit of God in us is not contained by our social norms, And this has long been affirmed in theological circles, this idea that God is both male and female and neither male nor female. And yet in the same breath, it's negated in all of the language that we use about God, right? Masculine people are the images or persons are the images that we use to describe God. God is a father, God is a son, God is a Lord, God is a king, God is a shepherd, God is a husband. So again and again, God may be beyond gender, but somehow God is still a he. And the theologian Elizabeth Johnson says that when we cast God as a man, we forget how big and how different and how mysterious our God is. And instead, we worship an idol that's made in the image of our human culture, and we call that God. So let's consider for a moment what it means that by casting God as a man, we might forget how mysterious God is. Throughout our tradition and our text, there's been an emphasis on the holiness of God. And holiness simply means otherness or uniqueness or set-apartness. 
The divine is something that's totally different than we can imagine. All of our metaphors for God will always fall short because they're only that, they're metaphors. They can never name God. You know, the early Christian thinker, St. Augustine, he wrote this, he said, it's easier to say what God is not than what God is. Because if we've understood, then what we've understood is not God. Some of you might follow the, the contemporary Irish philosopher, Peter Rollins, I think he's been opening for Rob Bell on Rob Bell's tour. He wrote an incredible book about this a few years ago. It's a very orthodox idea. It's called How Not to Speak of God. How Not to Speak of God. If you're philosophically minded, that would be, I I would recommend that book. He says it's really more orthodox to talk about what God is not rather than to try and name what God is. And I think this is why God didn't want God's followers to try and create images and to worship them in the Bible. Why God told us not to create idols. I think that call to not create idols was a call to not reduce God to something that humans could master, right? Instead, God called God's followers to simply worship God as Yahweh, meaning I am, right? Worship this deity, not as male or female, but simply as the God who exists beyond everything else that has been created in time. This divine force that we call God simply is. But God as a force that's unimaginable and never truly knowable is hard to connect with, right? And so we have this reality that God wants to connect with humans. And so God uses the limited signs and symbols and the human languages and the culturally bound metaphors that we have to try to communicate with us and to connect with us, right? So speaking to cultures steeped in patriarchy, and I would say that includes our own, Many of these signs and metaphors that we have recorded were masculine. Of course they were. And then patriarchal men interpreted those texts for all of the centuries. Priests, bishops, rabbis, theologians, pastors. And so God as a loving parent is understood as God as a loving father. And God as a family member who is with us and who is for us is talked about as a brother. And God is the one to be worshipped for God's ultimate capacity to hold all of creation in God's metaphorical hands is worshipped as king. And these representations aren't surprising and they're not even wrong as metaphors. They're just simply incomplete. And yet the resiliency of patriarchal cultural norms makes it easy for us, doesn't make it easy for us to say this out loud. You know, those of us who have been steeped in Christian tradition might feel weird not using male pronouns for God. I still do, right? I know I'm speaking for myself here. I have normalized the maleness of God. I've normalized acknowledging that God is beyond gender, but still I imagine God as a sort of heterosexual male kind of genderless God. (laughs) For those of us who are white, also white, right? White Jesus. I've normalized these images through the songs that I've sung, the pictures that I've seen, the scriptures I've read, the prayers I've been taught to pray, the sermons I've heard, and the sermons I've preached. And I've normalized it because I've been rewarded for using male language for God. And I've been warned off of challenging that in some circles, not at Blue Ocean, but in prior circles. And so have other female leaders. And my friend Leah, she's, she planted the Blue Ocean Church um, in Berkeley. She's a dynamite preacher. It'd be great to get her out here. She wrote this. She said, I remember being asked to give a teaching in a church setting not, longer at, well, not long after I'd become a mom. She has three kids now. 
And fresh off of that experience of childbirth, I was filled with wonder and a passion to talk about what I had learned of God through birth. Birth was an extremely spiritual experience for me. Laboring and delivering without pain medication, I came to the end of myself, but I also felt a profound unity with the divine in the midst of it. Delivering my son, I had the experience of bringing forth life through great pain. I understood a love that costs something. I understood the power of the cross in a way that I never had. I want to just say, as well, I don't have children. And certainly if you're a man, you can also find God in these other ways. But for her, she said childbirth was one of the ways that God spoke to her. She said, and yet, as I was preparing my teaching, I was warned not to speak directly using comparisons between myself as a birthing mother and God. That meditating on the motherness of God was threatening to the fatherness of God, and so it had to be discouraged. But how many times have I heard male pastors compare their experiences of fatherhood with the fatherhood of God? Never has anyone called that inappropriate. So what are we to do with a Bible that employs so many male metaphors of God? You know, do we just stop using them? What pronouns are appropriate? What does it mean that Jesus, who we call the revelation of God, came not just as any human being, but as a particular human being who was male? You know, I don't think there's a real easy answer to these questions, but you should know that this is a much larger conversation that's happening in the global church right now. And it's been going on for a few decades. It will continue evolving. But we are at a time in the church that they're calling the New Reformation. It's a time when there's a whole lot of issues that are on the table and are up for grads and being sort of reimagined and updated. And one of the ideas on the table for reform is how we speak about the gender of God. And it's not just happening in progressive circles. I remember being really surprised um, the Christian Reformed Church, which I think of as a more conservative congregation, they, they redid their hymnal to have gender-neutral pronouns like five to ten years ago, I think. Yeah, I think Ken's wife, Julia, is an Episcopal. She's been on their committee within the larger Episcopal church to do the same. Right? This is something that is happening in many, many spaces. We won't see the end of this conversation, I don't think, in our lifetime. But I do think in the meantime here, we can get closer to God when we're willing to represent God with both male and female imagery. When we can recognize that both of, both of those images both, like all kinds of imagery, I should say, is metaphor. It's not actually naming God. And while the texts that were composed in the Bible were composed in cultures that were certainly male-centered, there is a lot of surprising imagery of God as a female that is included. And I think we can employ that more often. In Isaiah 42, God is portrayed as a laboring woman. You know, that thing that my friend Leah was told not to do. Isaiah 42, God says this about God. For a long time I've kept silent, I've been quiet, and I've held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them, and I will make the rough places smooth. These are the things that I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, they will be turned back in utter shame. Right, so here we have Isaiah showing us that God is a laboring mother who will not be silenced and cannot be stopped as she makes a way for her children to come into life. Right? But then strikingly, those who will not worship her as she is, those who insist on worshiping a mere image of God and not God in God's fullness, cannot enter this life that she's offering. 
Elsewhere, God is portrayed in scripture as a nursing mother. God is portrayed as a hen gathering her chicks. That's one that Jesus talks about. Jesus, another time, uses a pair of metaphors and parables to talk about how God feels when the lost are found. One is a male metaphor. It's a shepherd that's finding a lost sheep. And the other is a female one. It's a woman celebrating because she found a lost coin. Right? So it's God as a woman looking for a coin. In another parable, Jesus speaks of the spreading of God's good realm being like yeast in dough that a woman is kneading. Right? So God in the metaphor is that woman. And God is working the dough and allowing the goodness to spread throughout it. And this doesn't even touch on the feminine conceptions of the Holy Spirit, who most often is spoken of in feminine terms in the scriptures and is probably most accurately described with female pronouns, or of wisdom that we have in the Bible. So there's a really rich history in the Christian and in the Jewish traditions of wisdom being personified as female. You see that like in the Proverbs, right? The word is Sophia in Greek. And for some people, that female personification has been seen to be the second person of the Trinity, the person who would eventually come in flesh as a man named Jesus. Jesus, at one point, I think it's in Luke, actually alludes to this idea that he himself is the personification of wisdom. And so from this view, Jesus holds within his male body the feminine wisdom known as Sophia. Right? So Jesus, while being bodily and historically male, he's not defined just by that maleness, but he brings these concepts of male and female together within his physical body. And in this way, he could be viewed as a non-binary being. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, the people of God would speak about God's compassionate care for Israel. And the word often used for compassion or mercy in the Hebrew Bible is rakum. And what most of us who don't speak Hebrew often miss is that this word also refers to the mother's womb, right? So the affection, the mercy, and the compassion that God has for God's people is being compared to a mother and how a mother regards a child in her womb. So according to the Hebrew Bible, God holds us in a womb of affection and considers us with us that level of intimacy and connection with herself. Right, this is the term that's being used with David, the great king of Israel, when he prays in Psalm 51. You know, David, David did a bad thing. David saw a friend of his wife. He raped her. He had her husband killed. And then he took her as his own wife. God calls him out on it, right? This is the very essence of patriarchy, right? And God calls him out on it and David repents, Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, your womb love. According to your womb love, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity, cleanse me of my sin. So we see David here appealing to God as mother, and he receives his mother's mercy. I think this is one of the ways that we start to counter patriarchy, right? We don't have to do away with all of the masculine metaphors for God, but we do need to celebrate both kinds of metaphors, and we need to proclaim them boldly. And we say, yes, God can be represented as a man, but also God can be represented as a woman. Did any of you guys read The Shack? A few of you? I mean, to me, that was one of the most revolutionary things that that book did. It was beautiful. 
portrayed God as a black woman, Jesus as a Middle Eastern carpenter, and then the Holy Spirit as an Asian woman. And I know like even talking with somebody in my own family who said that, man, that was just so powerful because some people have had different relationships with their fathers. And so projecting our own, you know, parental relationship onto God has been very difficult for people to access sort of the intimacy and the warmth of God. So we need to hold in tension, I think, these images and just say images are just images. They're just metaphors for God. We can't truly touch God. They are not God's essence. And the truth is, is that patriarchy doesn't harm just women right? Patriarchy harms men as well. And toxic masculinity is the way that this idol produces in men a false sense of what it means to be a man, elevating certain characteristics over others and calling them good, while others have to be suppressed and are called bad. A couple of weeks ago, Rachel and I had dinner with two of our best guy friends. We had them over. And knowing that I was going to be preaching on patriarchy in a couple of weeks, I just asked them, how do you feel the effects of patriarchy, you know, have played out in your own lives? I'm telling guys, it was was like popping a cork off of a champagne bottle. I mean, they talked so thoughtfully and were so very conscious of the pervasiveness of the effects of patriarchy on men. And many of you are probably like, all the guys are like, well, yeah. But I mean, it was really fascinating as a woman who's not married to a man to listen to. You know, we often talk about the effects of patriarchy on women because women have been victims of, you know, this system of oppression for, you know, forever. But men feel it too. And one of these same men later said to me, he said, it's always upset me when I encountered people discussing the need for boys and men to get in touch with their feminine side. When what they actually meant was to embrace their emotional sensitivity, creativity, imagination, and affectionate nature. These characteristics aren't feminine. They aren't masculine. They're human. You know, violence and rivalries were a theme in our dinner conversation, right? The idea that patriarchy creates rivalries among men to be the dominant or to be the alpha, which often produces violence or expectations of violence or the need to develop defense mechanisms to avoid violence. Another theme was the unfair expectations on male earning potential, Because of the pressure of a patriarchal system, I found that men suffer tremendously when they lose their jobs. I mean, women women suffer too, but men suffer tremendously because their identity is so tied up with work. And in some ways, it's like, man, there's nothing new under the sun, right? This is the wisdom of Genesis chapter 3 and what it is saying. When Adam was warned that he would work and work and work and never experience abundance, Right, that it wouldn't find fulfillment in that work. And I think this creates a crisis for men. Mental health crisis, it creates depression, it creates isolation, all of which men have been told not to talk about because they should be strong and they should be tough. Most men in our culture don't have friends. They certainly don't have close friends in whom that they can confide. And that's the result of a patriarchal culture that makes men feel like they need to look like they're in charge, they have it together, they're ruling the world, and it's detrimental for everyone. I mean, Rachel and I were just in Minnesota with her family. I think this is okay to share general, we'll see, yeah. Her older sister is raising four incredible boys, twin boys that are 10, 13, and 16, I think. 
And you know, I wasn't even talking to her about patriarchy. We were just talking on the back deck. And she was talking about how she you know, deliberately thinks about how to raise her boys into men who can be vulnerable and who can express a wide range of emotions. She's got one in particular. She's like, he's got the emotional range of a rock. I'm his mother. I mean, I don't want him to have this same conversation with a woman 25 years from now. How do I develop that? Because they're socially punished for vulnerability. You know, she said, even though she herself, she's a super successful, I mean, super successful business executive, and her boys have a role model of like a powerful female mother in the house, she still has to think really deeply about how to undo the overwhelming messages that these guys are receiving about men and women everywhere that they turn. You know, I was thinking about, I was like, this is the work of the kingdom of God. When I was, when I was thinking about this this morning, I was like, man, this is, this is the sacredness of raising children. It's the sacredness of doing Sunday school. This work of creating spaces where men and women, girls and boys can be in these spaces where they are seen as equals, where we affirm to girls that they have worth, that they are intelligent, that it's okay that they have desires. It's okay if they have you know, strong leadership abilities, that they're assertive, that they have characteristics that are sometimes punished in the larger culture. And we can tell men, it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay if you're hurting. It's okay if you have anxiety. It's okay if you want to be a ballerina. Like that creating those spaces is the work of God, right? This is helping bring us back to the Garden of Eden because I think that God wants us to help better access the dream of Eden, this original dream and hope he has for humanity. I think she wants to release us from the burdens of patriarchy. And she wants women to be free from male domination. And she wants men to feel free of tying up work with identity and of entwining masculinity with the control of women. She wants us to create spaces where we can all come before her as equals and honor the gifts that each one of us brings and that those gifts can cross traditional gender lines because we are all of us made in God's image. And I think this morning that God really wants to breathe on those parts of us that maybe feel like they don't fit gender stereotypes. So that's what I want to do. I know I went a little bit long and that was a little bit heavy, but I want to do with our meditation, um, I want to spend a little time allowing God to do some work in this space. So if you're new, we often do two to three minutes of silence or guided meditation. And in this guided meditation, I'm going to make it a little more communal. I want us to spend just a couple of minutes first, just envision a giant, either like a pool or a pond, some sort of water that each and every one of us is standing around together. And as we wait on God, I think what I'd like us to do is start out by just envisioning those parts of yourself that feel like they haven't fit a certain gender stereotype. Those parts of yourself that feel like they've been ridiculed for not quite being good enough or male enough or female enough. And let's just picture all of us together placing those into the pool. And let's do that for a couple of minutes before we invite, we go a little bit further. So come Holy Spirit, we know that you're here. We just invite you to just bring some healing and some release to us in this space as we turn these things over to you. You can even picture just like picking up that trait and just dropping it into the water. 
Now imagine God however you would like to imagine God personified. I'd invite you, if you haven't tried it, to think about God as a woman, but you don't have to. Imagine God comes up to this pool and joins us in this circle. Let's make space for God to speak to our hearts individually and just ask, do you have anything to say about all of this that's here, that we're offering you here together? Jesus saying anything to you personally about what you threw into the water? Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful diversity that you've created in humans and that together all of this diversity that is held in each one of us helps us more clearly see the entirety of the divine. Jesus, I ask that you would just bless and breathe on these aspects of us that are sometimes tamped down within our communities and our cultures. I ask that you would give us freedom to live fully into the human that you created each of us to be. Ask that you give us wisdom, Lord, for how to create this sort of beautiful community that's working toward that connectivity and that equality of the Garden of Eden. And that you would bless the sacred work of helping to raise children into that space as well, Lord, that you would bless the Sunday school teachers and the work that is being done in all of these spaces at home and in school, that you would give parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents wisdom for how to you know, really lovingly speak this truth into kids, Lord, that we won't, um, we'll be able to free them from the, the, the bounds of you know, some of the constraints that patriarchy has placed on them and some of the ill effects that it has created within our culture and within some of us. So Jesus, I ask that you would bless us and keep us as we go through this week. In the name of your Son, amen. Well, not in the name of Jesus' son. That's weird, right? God, in the name of your son, Jesus. <laughs>